This evening, we're continuing our overview of the Old Testament book titled Job. With this as the focus, if you would, let's open our Bibles to Job chapter 12. And as you make your way to the 12th chapter of Job, I just want to take a a moment to put our text back into its context. You see, uh, it'll first help us to remember that the main character of this book was a man of integrity who also feared God and shunned evil. And it's for this reason that a fallen angel named Satan, he sought out to destroy Job by putting his faith to the test. With this as his goal, Satan asked the Lord for the permission to put Job's faith to the test. And in response, the Lord agreed and allowed Satan to go and attack the family, the flocks, and the flesh of our servant Job. Well, as a result, uh, Job's sons and daughters, they all perished in a horrific windstorm. Uh, and, And then on the same day, his oxen and his donkeys were stolen by a band of raiders Uh, Then fire fell from the sky and burned up his sheep and many of his servants. And finally, Job's flesh was struck with painful boils from his uh, from from the sole of his foot, uh, you know, to the crown of his head. And so, you know, Job was suffering uh, physical infirmity on top of everything else. And And I should also remind you that his wife ended up encouraging him to simply curse God and then die. And so, uh, so he's got that going for him. Uh, and not only that, but then his three closest friends showed up to comfort him, uh, but then just began to launch into a series of false accusations as they encouraged him to realize that his suffering was evidence that the Lord was punishing him for living in unrepentant sin. And, and yet Job knew that he himself was a God-fearing man. He, he knew that their accusations were false. He knew that he was a God-fearing man. He knew that he had offered sacrifices for his sins and the sins of his children every morning. And with that being the case, well, we shouldn't be surprised to find Job continuing to contemplate questions about why the Lord was afflicting him in this way. And it's here in our text tonight. Here we find Job wrestling with questions about the reason for why the sovereign creator of all things is, at the very least, passively allowing evil to exist. And as we make our way through the chapter before us tonight, I'm guessing that we can all relate with the struggles that Job was presenting in in some small way. I'm sure that none of us have ever experienced the same level of suffering, but in the midst of our suffering, I'm guessing that there's been times when we've wondered, why is God allowing this? And so with with all of this in in focus, uh, let's consider the way that that Job first responds to the false accusations that had been made by his friend Zophar. And with that, if you would look with me here at Job chapter 12, We'll begin our study of Job 12 there at verse 1. Here we read, Then Job answered and said, No doubt you are the people, and wisdom will die with you. Now here in the beginning of this chapter, we find Job, he's getting a little snarky here in his response to Zophar. And while it's possible that Job was simply speaking satirically as he challenged the false accusations of his friends, It's also possible that this was actually a sarcastic response based on some bitterness that that he was feeling. Maybe he was struggling with frustration after realizing that his three comforters had actually become his three accusers. Well, with all this in mind, we should take a moment to ask, is sarcasm a sin? Is sarcasm a sin? And if you're like, well, doy, then you're sinning. 
because that would be sarcastic. Is sarcasm always sin, or is there such a thing as sanctified sarcasm? And in order to answer this question, let's take another look at verse 2. Here again, Job declares, No doubt you are the people, and wisdom will die with you. Now I love that. I just, I just think that's such an excellent response to Zophar. But Job here was suggesting that his friends were the custodians of all knowledge and that wisdom would vanish from the earth at the time of their death. Maybe you know someone like that who just thinks that you know, everything they say is just so 100% true. And as we consider this clapback coming from Job, you know, there should be no doubt that, that Job was speaking sarcastically here. And, and Job didn't really believe that his friends were the fount of all knowledge. No, uh, he didn't. And, and instead, he thought that they were false accusers because that's what they were doing. And with all this being the case, you know, we should take a moment to ask, was Job's sarcasm sinful? Was Job sinning in this sarcastic response? Or are there times when it's okay for the people of God to engage in some level of sarcasm? Now, some of us are quick to insist that sarcasm is always a sin, and, and maybe you're someone who just does not appreciate sarcasm, and so you have the opinion that anybody who's being sarcastic is clearly being sinful. Others will see sarcasm as the body's natural defense against stupidity. And, you know, so there's that. But seriously, you know, is sarcasm always a sin or is there such a thing as sanctified sarcasm? And with these questions in mind, you might be interested to know that there are several examples of sanctified sarcasm in the scriptures. For example, it's in 1 Kings chapter 18 where we find the prophet Elijah. He's sarcastically mocking the false prophets of Baal. As a matter of fact, it's in verse 27 where we, we read this, that at noon Elijah mocked them, saying, "'Cry aloud, for he is a god.'" Either he is musing, or he is relieving himself, or he is on a journey, or perhaps he is asleep and must be awakened. Now, here in this verse, we find the prophet Elijah, he, he had encouraged them to call upon their God to see if their God would respond, and there was no response from Baal, and so he starts sarcastically mocking the false prophets of Baal before killing several hundred of them. And, and, but before killing them, he, did, did, you know, he, he mocked them by asking them if Baal was too busy. Is he too busy to, to respond to you? And, and when he asks, is he possibly relieving himself? Well, this was a bathroom joke, and it was very sarcastic. Uh, and yet, I would call this sanctified sarcasm. Uh, another beautiful example of sanctified sarcasm can be found in Mark chapter 3. Uh, there we learn that the Lord Jesus called James and John the sons of thunder. It's one of my favorite passages in the Bible. And the reason why is, is because, listen, James and John, these were the two guys who asked the Lord if he wanted them to call down fire from heaven to consume an entire village of Samaritans. You see, these Samaritans, they weren't quick to receive Jesus. They, they instead were quick to question him. And so James and John are like, hey, do you want us to call down fire from heaven, you know, like Elijah did? And to that, Jesus says, no, he actually rebukes them and says, you don't know what spirit you're talking about here. And while they were asking Jesus to provide them with the power of lightning, he simply called them the sons of thunder. And remember, thunder is the noise aspect of it without the fire part. So he's basically saying, you can't call down fire. You're just being, you're just being noisy, you know, like the sons of thunder. 
Without debate, this is a beautiful example of sanctified sarcasm, which was demonstrated by our Savior, as he calls John, uh, you know, and, and, uh, and his, um, <clears throat> excuse me, uh, James and his brother John, uh, the sons of thunder. <clears throat> now, I do fully believe that there are times when sanctified sarcasm is the appropriate response. And yet I should also remind you of the warning that Paul presented in Ephesians chapter 5. It's verse 4 where he discourages us from filthiness, foolish talking, and coarse jesting, which are not fitting, but rather giving of thanks. In other words, Paul was helping us to understand that Christians ought to abstain from obscene stories foolish talk, and vulgar jokes. And this, of course, includes the sort of sarcasm that seeks to hurt the feelings of others. Now listen, if you're interested in learning more about the difference between sinful and sanctified sarcasm, I encourage you to go listen to a study I did several years ago. It's called Holy Humor, and you, and you can find the study on our website. Uh, but, but just for the sake of our study tonight, I should point out that it is my opinion that sarcasm, the, the, the sarcasm of Job was completely sanctified. I don't think that he was sinning when he responded to his friends in this way. The reason why is because this was actually a satirical way of reproving the pride of these men who truly thought that they were the fount of all knowledge. You know, these men who were making false accusa- accusations against him, you know, they were thinking that they had, you know, this, this divine insight into the life of Job, but the fact is they didn't. And sometimes people who are filled with pride need a cutting word of correction, which could include some level of sanctified sarcasm. At the same time, though, Christians should also make sure that we aren't using sarcasm as a comical camouflage to hide our bitter feelings. To explain my point, let's pick up our study of Job chapter 12. If you would look with me there, beginning at verse 3, Here Job goes on to declare this. He says, But I have understanding as well as you. I am not inferior to you. Indeed, who does not know such things as these? I am one mocked by his friends who called on God, and he answered him, The just and blameless who is ridiculed. Now, here in these verses, we find Job, he's continuing to address his accusers by presenting them with clear communication. And from this, we can see here that Job wasn't using sarcasm now like like some sort of uh, comical camouflage which was designed to hide his true feelings. No, instead he was using sanctified sarcasm in order to put them in their place. And then from there, he goes on to plainly explain to them uh, that, that their assessment of his situation wasn't really based on true wisdom from God. And in light of this example, as we consider the way that Job goes from this sarcastic statement to to an ongoing explanation of his issues or concerns about what they were saying, uh, we should consider how important it is for us to realize that those who use sarcasm as a way to avoid the conflict that we have with others, well, they're actually just hiding behind a wall of sinful satire by using sarcasm to camouflage their bitterness. And that, of course, is sinful. That is very sinful. And, and I would even argue that it's a bit deceptive. Listen, if this sounds like something that you struggle with, I encourage you to consider the challenge that King Solomon presented in Proverbs chapter 26. It's verses 18 and 19 where he says this, Like a madman who throws firebrands, arrows, and death is the man who deceives his neighbor and says, I was only joking. Think about that. 
The bitter believer who uses sarcasm to address those they're angry with, only to then pretend like it's all just a big joke, that there's no real issue here, I'm just joking around, well, that's deception. That's just deception. And according to King Solomon, this is the approach of a madman or a crazy person who throws firebrands and arrows and death. That's quite the comparison. You know, this is a comparison between those who vent their feelings and they just back it off by saying, I'm just joking. That's the same as a crazy person who throws fire into their own home or, or burns down, you know, uh, their, their, their neighbor's house or something like that. Listen, if you have an issue with another person and you're using sarcastic jokes to camouflage your true feelings, then you're deceptively destroying the relationship that you have with that person with sinful sarcasm. And with that being the case, I just encourage every Christian to stop hiding their feelings you know, behind some sort of smoke screen of sarcasm. If you're using jokes and you're cutting other people down in order to hide your bitterness or, or the pain you feel towards that person, stop it. It's not helping. You're just throwing logs on the, on the fire of that conflict. Instead, we ought to become believers who are real with one another as we learn to love one another with the love of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, with this as the goal, I want to continue to consider the way that Job presented the issues that he was having with the false accusations of his friends. And so let's pick up our study of Job chapter 12. If you would look with me there, beginning at verse 5. Here Job declares, A lamp is despised in the thought of one who is at ease. It is made ready for those whose feet slip. The tents of robbers prosper, and those who provoke God are secure in what God provides by his hand. Now here in these verses we find Job, he's correcting his friends for the way that they had falsely accused him. And so what began with a sarcastic statement is now a further explanation of his struggles with you know, the, their assessment of the situation. And, and as we read these verses, listen, listen, you know how much I love the New King James Version of the Bible, uh, and, and we all know it dropped down straight from heaven uh, into, uh, into, yeah, but... Uh, uh, no, you know, I love the New King, King James Version, but there are times when we come across, you know, a translation of a verse where it's just kind of like, what? What does that even mean, you know? And, and, and that certainly is the case in verse 5 there. A lamp is despised in the thought of one who is at ease. What in the world? What are we talking about here? Well, I like the way that the scholars who created the English Standard Version rendered these verses. They put it like this. In the thought of one who is at ease, there is contempt for misfortune. It is ready for those whose feet slip. The tents of robbers are at peace, and those who provoke God are secure, who bring their God in their hand. In other words, Job here is challenging his friends for being the accusers, the the ones who accused him of sin, uh, as they were sitting in a place of ease or comfort. It's real easy when everything's going right in your life to look down on those whose lives are falling apart and then look at them and think, what are you doing wrong? I mean, clearly you've got to be doing something wrong. You know, meanwhile, they're sitting in the seat of comfort looking down on everybody else. Uh, With even more clarity, the scholars who created the New Living Translation render verses 5 and 6 in this way. People who are at ease mock those in trouble. They give a push to people who are stumbling, which is always hilarious for YouTube videos, of course but never a good practice in the church. You don't want to push a person who's already stumbling. You want to try to help them to not fall. 
Verse 6 is translated in this way, but robbers are left in peace and those who provoke God live in safety, though God keeps them in his power. Job here is comparing his friends to those who push people who are stumbling, and, and he was right uh, you know, when, his, when his friends then added insult to injury as they mocked him during his time of trouble. And, and to prove his point, Job then appeals to the fact that there are robbers who are living in peace. And, and there were people who provoked God, and yet they still enjoy some level of security, the, the security that comes from the gracious provision of the Lord. This is what we call God's common grace. You know, there's a common grace that's just extended to every person, you know, whether they're a law-abiding citizen or a criminal. Lots of unrepentant sinners are living their best life now. No doubt about it. There are many people, most of them are in Washington, they're, they're living their best life now, though they're just criminals. And, and they're robbing us. And so if it's true, listen, if it's true that God punishes the wicked, then why are all these wicked people going unpunished? And, and, and that's basically Job's point here. If what, you're, if what you guys are saying is that God is punishing me because I'm wicked, well, what about all the other wicked people who aren't being punished right now? Well, after appealing to the criminals who are living in peace... Job then appeals to the creation as further evidence of his argument. I want to consider how Job puts it here in Job chapter 12. If you would look with me there, beginning at verse 7, here he declares, But now ask the beasts, and they will teach you, and the birds of the air, and they will tell you, or speak to the earth, and it will teach you, and the fish of the sea will explain to you, because it's shark week. Listen, (laughs) here in these verses, we find Job appealing to the beasts, the birds, and the fish. He's appealing to the, the animal world as earthly evidence that pain and suffering isn't always evidence of sin. Think about it. Animals can't sin. Now, you think your dog sins, but... But it doesn't. It doesn't understand sin. Because listen, they don't have the testimony of the law written on their hearts. And yet there should be no doubt that there are beasts and birds and fish that experience pain and suffering. There, there are most certainly you know, animals in the, in the animal kingdom that, that experience suffering. I mean, so, someone's going to eventually be food in the animal kingdom. It happens. Is that evidence that they're sinning? Is that proof that God's punishing, you know, that, you know, that squirrel or, 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 or that prairie dog or, or, or that wolf or whatever gets consumed by the larger animals? Is that just proof that, well, that animal must have sinned, you know, so God punished them? How silly is that? With all this in mind, we can be certain that, you know, the, those who are wise will realize that pain and suffering isn't always evidence of unrighteousness. There are times when people who are living a righteous life end up suffering and end up you know, uh, experiencing uh, the pain of this world. Job takes it then a step further by insisting that the Lord is the one who has ordained all of these things. As a matter of fact, look with me there beginning at verse 9. Here Job goes on to ask, Who among all these does not know that the hand of the Lord has done this? 
in whose hand is the life of every living thing and the breath of all mankind. Does not the ear test words and the mouth taste its food? Wisdom is with aged men and with the length of days understanding. With him are wisdom and strength. He has counsel and understanding. If he breaks a thing down, it cannot be rebuilt. If he imprisons a man, there can be no release. If he withholds the waters, they dry up. If he sends them out, they overwhelm the earth. Now here in these verses we find Job, he's presenting yet another argument for the absolute sovereignty of God. And and while there should be no doubt that our creator is sovereign over his creation, it's also important for us to realize that there are those who think that God's sovereignty then includes a level of control that robs humans of the free will to make our own decisions. And this seems to be the mindset of Job here. This seems to be what he's suggesting here. To prove my point, let's take another look at the question that he poses back in verses 9 and 10. There he asks, Who among all these does not know that the hand of the Lord has done this, in whose hand is the life of every living thing and the breath of all mankind? Now, I want to remind you as we consider this question, you know, Job is presenting this question after describing all of the suffering that happens everywhere in the world. He's saying, hey, look at the pain and the suffering happening in in the animal kingdom. Look at the pain and suffering that that happens uh, among humans. And and knowing that he also was a man who believed that the Lord was the one who was causing his pain and his suffering, because he's already stated this several times throughout this book, that God was the one who was pouring out this pain and suffering upon him. Well, this question here in verses 9 and 10 carries with it uh, some uh, a theological ramification that God is the one who is actively causing the pain and the suffering. Now, as we consider Job's perspective, it's important for us to remember that the Lord wasn't the one who was punishing Job. No, instead, he was simply suffering the spiritual attack of Satan. And while it's true that Satan had received permission from the Lord Well, it's also true that the Lord always has a wonderful reason for the pain and the suffering that he allows. I think Paul explains it best in Romans chapter 8. It's there where he declares, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. For the earnest expectation of the creation eagerly waits for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope, because the creation itself also will be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and labors with birth pangs together until now. Not only that, but we also who have the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, eagerly waiting for the adoption the redemption of our body. From this, we can see that the Lord decided to curse his own creation on the day when Adam and Eve freely decided to consume the forbidden fruit. And listen, God the Father allowed Adam to represent us when he sinned there in the garden. He allowed Adam to represent us so that he could turn around and send his only begotten son to suffer for us there on the cross. And it was there on the cross where the second Adam received our punishment so that those who trust in him could escape the condemnation of the curse. 
So did God sovereignly deliver the entire creation into the bondage of corruption? Yes. Yes, he did. And yet he did this with the predetermined plan of providing sinners with a Savior who could represent us uh, in in a federal way, uh, much like Adam represented us in a federal way there in the garden. This predetermined plan provides sinners with a Savior who can provide us with a way to become the adopted children of God. And now our sovereign Lord is allowing us to experience the pain and the suffering of this cursed world so that we might learn how to look to him and rely on him as we wait for the day of our redemption. In order to further grasp this incredible truth, I want to continue to consider the perspective that Job presents here in Job chapter 12. If you would look with me there beginning at verse 16. Here Job goes goes on to declare, With him are strength and prudence, that uh, the deceived and the deceiver are his. He leads counselors away, plundered, and makes fools of the judges. He loosens the bonds of kings and binds their waist with a belt. He leads princes away, plundered, and overthrows the mighty. He deprives the trusted ones of speech and takes away the, the discernment of the elders. He pours contempt on princes and disarms the mighty. He covers deep things out of darkness and brings the shadow of death to light. He makes nations great and destroys them. He enlarges nations and guides them. He takes away the understanding of the chiefs of the people of the earth and makes them wander in in a pathless wilderness. They grope in the dark without light and he makes them stagger like a drunken man. Wow. Here in, here in the final verses of this chapter, we find Job going back to, uh, just, to just kind of that depressive you know, perspective of, of God's sovereign hand uh, you know, over the creation. And, and as we consider Job's perspective on the sovereignty of God, you know, it's almost like, you know, yeah, God's kind of doing all these things, and, and it, it, it works out poorly for so many. And, and, and if I understand... You know, Job properly here, he seems to be thinking that God is sovereignly controlling every single person in every single decision along the way. This apparently includes everyone from those who are deceived to, to those who are deceivers. That both of these are gods, that, that he's working both of these things out. Not only that, but Job also mentions God's power over counselors and judges as well as kings and princes. And, and Job also assures his audience that the Lord is the one who establishes and he's also the one who destroys nations. Now, as we consider Job's assessment of God's sovereignty uh, here, uh, we should take a moment to ask, you know, was Job, uh, was Job here suggesting that God's sovereignty is based solely on the strength and prudence that he mentions back in verse 16? In other words, you know, he, he starts off by saying that, that God, you know, is, is uh, he's a God of strength and prudence a God of strength and prudence, and then launches into this, the deceived and the deceiver are his, and he leads counselors away plundered and makes fools of the judges and you know, these sorts of things. And it's almost as if Job is saying, well, he's almighty. He's the almighty one, and, and he's the all, omniscient one, and, and so all of this is according to, to his strength. He's, he's, he's forcing everybody's will. You know, he, he's, he's choosing everybody's path, and, and this is how, how it all works out. It's almost like Job is saying here that God moves us around like chess pieces on the board of his own creation and according to his prudence and strength. 
Does he actually do this, though? Does he actually wrench our arms up behind our backs and make us make the decisions that we make? Does he actually take away the understanding of our leaders by making them stagger around like drunken men in search of more ice cream? This certainly seems to be Job's point of view here. And, uh, you know, if, if, if that's the case, if I'm understanding Job uh, correctly here, uh, then his perspective on the sovereignty of God is similar to the perspective of those who have come to the conclusion that God has predetermined every decision that every person is going to make. It's a form of, you know, hard determinism where it's like we don't have any real say in the matter. We're just doing what God determined for us to do. And if that's the case, well, then wouldn't this also mean that we've never, ever sinned? Think about that for a moment. If we're just doing what God has predetermined us to do, well, then we've never sinned. Think about it. Sin is that which is in conflict with the will of God. When we talk about sin, we're talking about missing the mark. Well, what's the mark? God's will. God's will is the mark, we're aiming for it, and if we don't hit that mark, then it's sin. Well, if God wills me to do every single thing that I'm doing right now, then I've never, ever missed the mark, and neither have you. And so a God who has predetermined every decision that we would ever make along the way, well, how can he call anything we do sin when he's the one who determined us to do it? I don't know what I'm saying. I was, I was just predestined to say all these things, so you, you figure it out. But uh, I, I just have a hard time with this idea that you know, God is the sovereign, prudent, you know, strength, you know, strong God, the, the all-powerful all God who's moving, moving us around. He forces these people to do this and that, those people to do that. and It just doesn't make good sense to me. We, we, we know that this can't be the case. We, we know that God hasn't you know, hard determined us to make every single little decision along the way. And the reason we know this is because, listen, the Bible is filled with historic records of people using their free will to do things that were contrary to the will of God. Case in point, Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve made a decision to eat forbidden fruit there in the book of Genesis. And we continue to see stories like this all the way to the book of Revelation where we find unrepentant unbelievers receiving the mark of the beast against the will of God. Without debate, the Bible is filled with account after account that helps us to see that we have free will. Of course, within the preordained boundaries of the creation. But within these boundaries, we have free will. Case in point, let's consider a statement that Jesus made in Luke chapter 13. There he declares, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the one who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her, how often I wanted to gather your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, but you were too chicken. No, that's not, that's not what it says. But you, were too, but, but, but you were not willing, is what he says. I wanted to gather you together like a hen does her, her brood, but, but you weren't willing. We can see here that it was the Lord's desire to, to bring Israel together, but Israel said, nah, that's not what we want. They were unwilling to comply. Clearly, 
they must have had the free will to oppose the Lord's will. What this means then is that God is allowing humans to exercise free will. And so he says to the nation of Nineveh through, through Jonah, hey, if you repent, I'll relent. But if you don't repent, I'm going to destroy you. And then they make up their mind. What did they do? They repented. God help America. Nineveh repented and God relented of the destruction that he would have poured out had they not repented. And while God is allowing humans to exercise free will, he still remains sovereign over our free will. I know this baffles some people. Some people think that, well, if humans have free will, then God isn't truly sovereign. Well, that's a very limited view of sovereignty. I believe in a God who's so sovereign that he can remain sovereign over all free free will decisions of humans. And one way that he does this is by predetermining the final destination for both believers and unbelievers. In other words, he's given us a choice to trust in Jesus or not. And while we have the free will to decide whether to trust in Jesus or not, God has already sovereignly determined that those who do trust in Jesus Christ are going to be conformed to the image of Jesus and then you know, enjoy eternity in everlasting glory. Conversely, those who choose to reject Jesus, well, God has sovereignly decided that they're going to end up in everlasting condemnation there in the lake of fire. So we have free will to make the decision, you know, but that free will is only extended as far as eternity. Those who choose Jesus will enjoy eternity with Jesus, and those who reject Jesus will suffer in eternity without Jesus. And with that being the case, you know, I, I would encourage every person to use their free will wisely. We need to use our free will wisely and according to the predetermined, pre-appointed times and boundaries that God has placed us in. I, I like the way that Paul put this in Acts chapter 17. It's there where he declares that he has made from one blood every nation of men to dwell on all the face of the earth and has determined their pre-appointed times and the boundaries of their dwellings so that they should seek the Lord in the hope that they might grope for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. Now now listen, Job, he saw God's sovereign hand you know, as, as a hand that forces us to grope in the dark without light as he makes people stagger around like drunken men. That was Job's perspective on God's sovereignty. Paul's perspective on God's sovereignty is this, that he's determined the pre-appointed times and boundaries of our dwellings so that we should seek the Lord in the hopes that we might grope for him and find him, though he's not far from each one of us. I prefer Paul's point of view here. <laughs> you know, no doubt that Job was struggling and suffering and trying to make sense of this God and didn't have the Bible and all of these sorts of things. Thankfully for us, we have the Bible. And we know what the Bible says about God's sovereignty and about his perfect purpose to provide us with the very best opportunity to to seek the Lord and grope for him and find him, though he's not far from each one of us. He's predetermined these things so that we might find the Lord Jesus Christ and so that we might have a relationship with, with him. And and you know, just to make sure that we would have the very best chance 
The Father sent the Holy Spirit after the ascension of Jesus to draw us, to convict our hearts of sin and righteousness and judgment so that he might draw us to the cross where we can receive the gracious gift of forgiveness by faith in Jesus Christ. And so listen, the best thing that we can do with our free will is to freely submit our free will to the perfect will of our Savior Jesus, knowing that his will is always the best plan for our lives. And yeah, even when this includes pain and suffering. Let's walk by faith with Jesus and trust in his perfect plan. And he'll help us to walk according to his perfect will. Let's pray.